Well, I am Pastor Darren. Glad that you're here at Pice Peak Christian Church. I don't recognize a lot of people. Some of you really cleaned up well. So, uh, but some of, you, some of you said you didn't recognize me either, so fair deal. Um, today, as you head out, by the way, there's a photographer who'd love to take your family picture. Um, so when you go out by the fireplace, it's free. They'll get posted online. You can download it. And uh, just, just remember today, since some of you are, are dressed nicer than you typically are, it's a great day to get a family picture. Well, I love the fact that Easter takes place in the springtime, aren't you? It's a time when trees are blossoming and flowers are, are blooming, and it's just a beautiful time. If it was November, it just feels so much different. But there's new life um, that's just sprouting up everywhere in the springtime, and it reminds us of the new life that Christ gives. Now, on our property, we have a lot of small trees, and every time during this season of the year, I, I get a little nervous because depending on how the winter went, like this winter was very warm and dry, I get concerned that some of these trees aren't going to make it. So I'm looking at the trees around the property, and the, and the plum trees are just looking beautiful. They're blossoming little flowers all over them. But the maple trees I'm concerned about. And you can't tell by looking at them whether they're alive or not. I mean, you actually have to go up to a, a branch and bend it, and if it snaps off, you realize there's, that, that branch is dead or the tree's dead. If it just flexes, then there's some life in it. But you can't actually tell until some growth happens. And it reminds me of people. Now, you look at people around us, and you can't really tell who's spiritually alive or not. Now, I know externally we all look like we're alive. We've got physical bodies, we're moving, but, but God made us with the Spirit inside. And I'm really wondering, when, when we look at one another, do we see evidence of life? See, our job as a church is to connect you to the source of life, which is Jesus Christ. And a lot of people have differing views of who Jesus is. Some people think Jesus was just a great teacher, he taught some wonderful things, some ethical things, some good principles for life. Some people uh, believe that Jesus was a prophet and told uh, of things to come or that he was a miracle worker and did some fantastic things. But we've been spending several weeks as a church looking in the Gospel of John at some statements Jesus makes about himself because the real issue is who did Jesus say that he was? What did Jesus think about himself? And I have to tell you, he was crystal clear on his identity and his purpose. And in John's gospel, there are recorded seven statements that all begin very similarly with the two words, I am. And Jesus had made a statement once where he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And what Jesus was doing by, by introducing those words, I am, was connecting himself to one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. The time when Moses was before a burning bush, when the voice of God said, Moses, I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh and to bring my people out of Egypt. And when Moses, in his fear, said, but who am I going to say sent me? God said to him, tell them I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. So God is known by his name in the Old Testament as I am. And in the New Testament, when Jesus comes along and imposes the words I am, the religious leaders were so upset with him, they wanted to kill him. Now, I could say I am. I could say I am a father. I am a pastor. I am a Chicago Cubs fan. I could say a lot of things about myself and, and not upset hardly anybody, unless you're not a Cubs fan. Then maybe you're upset. But when Jesus used these words like I am the bread of life, implying that he's the one that feeds us, when he said I am the light of the world, which means I am. I am the one who brings you into reality. I am the gate, meaning I am the access into a better life. I am the good shepherd. I am the one who really cares for you. He was saying some pretty profound things. And today we're looking at one of those I am statements found in the Gospel of John in chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus said to a lady named Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Now, that's, that verse takes place in the context of a story found in John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, you might want to follow along with us. But in this story, Jesus um, comes to the home of a couple ladies, Mary and Martha, and actually their brother Lazarus, who's very sick at the time. And if you know the story, you know that, that Jesus is going to come and raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to bring him out of a tomb. And this story has given hope for people for, for many, many generations. In fact, in Rome, when the Christians were suffering persecution, down in the catacombs, the, the underground tunnels, the places where people actually would bury the dead, they found a number of, of paintings and, and drawings depicting this story. There's more than 60 of them. It's as if people look to this story of the raising of Lazarus as a way to find hope in a dark world. And I think it's true for us today that we need hope in the world in which we live. Van Gogh, a Dutch painter, when he painted this scene of Lazarus coming out from the tomb, painted his own face on the body of Lazarus. Because what he felt is what I think all of us desire is, I want that experience myself. I am experiencing death. And maybe you're in a place of life where sin has wrapped its arms around you or death has engulfed you and you just just feel trapped in a place of life. You just feel like, like the life is being sucked out of you. And I want you to know the resurrection is not just about Jesus rising from the dead. It's bigger than that. It's about you and I rising from the dead. Not just in the future, but even today. He didn't say, I will be your resurrection in life. I am your resurrection in life. And just like that song we sang, the the resurrected king is resurrecting me. He can do that even today. And my prayer for you and our prayers of staff for you has been for some of you who've been kind of on the fringe and wondering who Jesus is, that today you would step out of of the tomb and say, I believe that you are my resurrection and life. So we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 11. We won't read every verse in this story, but I'm going to start with verse verse 3. Lazarus is very sick, and so the, the, the word is sent by the sisters to Jesus. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, that sounds very odd to me. That Jesus had this special relationship with this family. Mary, who is a, a lady who actually washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Um, Martha, who's like a Martha Stewart. She's a very dutiful woman, takes care of details. Those are two sisters. They have this brother named Lazarus. Jesus spent many times with them in their, their hometown of Bethany very close to these siblings. And so Lazarus is very sick. He is seriously sick. And they call out for Jesus to come because they know what Jesus can do. They know the stories of Jesus healing the sick. All Jesus needs to do is come and touch Lazarus. In fact, he doesn't even need to come. He could just speak the word and Lazarus would be healed. But what does Jesus do? It says he waits two days. He waits. And what's going to happen is Lazarus is going to die. And you have to wonder why. Why, Jesus? Why did you wait? See, there are a number of issues we're going to deal with in this story, and the first one is disillusionment, this issue of disillusionment. And disillusionment comes when God doesn't do things the way you think they should be done or doesn't show up in, at the, the time you think he should. We don't, we, don't, we don't like his tactics or we don't like his timetable. Because if we were God, this is how we would do it. In fact, a little bit later on in this story, we find in verse 21 where 
Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, Jesus, if you had done it my way, you would have gotten your butt over here, healed my brother, and everything would have been okay, but you didn't do that. And later on, even Mary comes and says basically the same thing to Jesus. Why did he wait two days? Why doesn't Jesus do things the way it would make the most sense to us? Why doesn't he eliminate the pain? Why does he rescue people from suffering? Why does God allow people to go through such traumatic things in their lives? I don't have all the answers to questions like that. Because I do know that, that sometimes we pray and God does a miraculous thing. And sometimes we know people who've experienced God's providence in a miraculous way. And we say, God, if you did it for them, and we know you did it for people in the Bible, surely you can do it for me if I would just pray and ask. And honestly, I've prayed for many, many people, hundreds if not thousands of people who've been sick, and we've seen people miraculously healed, cancerous tumors shriveling up, people who are told by doctors you're not going to make it, come out of the hospital and, and have years and years ahead of their life. But I've also prayed for people who've died. I prayed for couples with a baby. The baby was having trouble in, in the womb, and that, that resulted in a miscarriage. I, I prayed for people who thought they had this dream job before them, and it fell through. I prayed for people to have their marriage saved, and it ended in divorce. And maybe you've gone through a situation like that where you step back and say, God, I, I don't doubt that you could do this. I don't question your ability Because you've done it before. What I have a hard time with is your heart. Why wouldn't you do it for me? Why wouldn't you do it for my spouse or my kids or my friend? Why wouldn't you do it for them? And that's where we struggle. How do we look a God like that in the face and say, I still believe in you? Some of us find that point in life as a point where we turn away from the Lord because we just can't reconcile the two. God can, but he doesn't. You know, the scripture tells us in the book of Isaiah... Chapter 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And we see things kind of like through the knot hole of a fence. We see a snapshot. God's looking over the top of the fence and seeing the, the whole landscape. He sees all of life. He sees what's happened in the past. He sees what's happening in the future. And all we can see right now is the immediate, and we want, we want resolution. We want to be rescued at the moment. But God sees it very differently. I don't know always why God does what he does, but I know sometimes God says, I, I, I'm saying no right now, but no means not yet. Because I have to prepare you for what I'm going to bring you. I knew a man who prayed for years that God would bring him a, a godly wife into his life. And he got very frustrated having to wait year after year. And I kept reminding him, maybe God is preparing you for the right woman. Maybe the issue is you. You're, you're not ready You're not in a position to give your life to someone else, to sacrifice the way your wife will need you to sacrifice. You're too self-centered with your lifestyle, and you need to learn to grow and mature. Maybe maybe God's preparing the other person for you, that they're not ready for you. Or maybe God's preparing the circumstances so that they're kind of lining up like dominoes. God's putting things in position. Sometimes God says no because God has something greater in mind that, that maybe for you, doesn't feel good at the moment, but in the long run gives God the greatest glory. See, Jesus even said that what is going to happen in this situation is going to bring God glory. He'd already healed sick people. He'd already shown his power over, over disease, over demons, over the power of nature. But now he's going to do something pretty dramatic. He's going to show in a very vivid way his power over death. 
And it's going to be so unexplainable that people are going to say only God could do that. Sometimes God allows a death in order to bring a resurrection that gives him the soul glory. Sometimes I believe we, we um, get impatient with God. We say, God, you know, you're not acting, and I'm going I'm to go ahead and do it myself. I'm going to buy that thing that you won't give me an answer to. I'm going to marry that person that, that, that I'm eager to marry, or I'm going to take that job, and we hastily do something, and then we pay a price later. Reminds me of this missionary woman who had to leave the missionary field because her husband was very ill, and, 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 and it hurt her to watch her husband struggle. And as a symbol of his struggle, she had a little cocoon of an emperor moth. Now, the emperor moth is a very beautiful moth. It has colorful wings with patterns that are beautiful. And the cocoon of the emperor moth is shaped like a flask. It has a little tiny opening at the top of it. And after about a year of holding on to this cocoon, which looked pretty dry and dead, she started to see life move. And she started to see this cocoon start to break open. But as she watched with mercy upon this little creature inside the cocoon trying to break free, she realized that cocoon's pretty tough. And that moth isn't making it out very easily, so I'm going to give it a little help. So she took some scissors and she snipped open the, the, the top of it and broke it a little so the moth could actually get out easily. And it did. It just kind of flopped out. But when she looked at this moth, it was deformed with a huge body and tiny little wings. And, and within the hour, it died. And what she didn't realize is God created that cocoon for that moth for a special purpose. That in the agony of wriggling through that tiny opening in the cocoon, what it would do is force the fluids in the body into the wings and allow them to be the glorious, large, beautiful wings that God designed them to be. But because she didn't want to see the moth struggle, she cut its life short. I think sometimes we want God to rescue us out of a difficult situation when God says, your greatest growth is happening right now. How many of us us as parents... Have a goal. I want to I keep my kids from every painful experience. When sometimes the best thing we can allow for them is to struggle through a situation. And that in the struggle will come the greatest growth in their lives. Disillusionment is an issue we deal with. But, but Jesus comes, it says in verse 17, it says on his arrival he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He did die. He's been dead for a few days. You can, you can imagine the disappointment of the sisters that Jesus has taken such a long time to get here, and by now he's all wrapped up, and he's been, he's been put away in the tomb. And this brings an issue that we all deal with, which is death. They say that there are two things that, that, uh, that Americans have to face that are inevitable, and it's ironic that they both happen this weekend. We're talking about death, and we're talking about taxes. Right? Now, they used to add on a third one that the Chicago Cubs won't make it to the World Series, but that got blown out of the water last year. So death and taxes. So, so death. Death is a subject that we're very uneasy to talk about, except when it comes to zombies. I mean, there is this fascination with zombies in our culture. I don't understand it, but there are TV shows that some of you watch, like The Walking Dead, about dead people walking. And, and I watched the movie I Am Legend. And, you know, I just don't get into the zombie thing. I remember watching America's Got Talent and it seemed like every dance troupe had to do a zombie dance. I mean, people dressed up with their grotesque makeup and eyes falling out and body parts showing the bones and things, and they're doing all the death walks. And, you know, you're watching all this, and I go, I, I don't understand our fascination with zombies. I don't think there really is going to be a zombie apocalypse. I really don't. 
But I was reading on why that is such a big deal today. And one psychologist says that, that he believes it is a display of the chaos and, and, the, and the distortion of what's happening inside the human soul. That what we're seeing on the outside is what's happening on the inside. And that what God designed to be beautiful and, and orderly and harmonious has been destroyed by the effects of sin. And now we're seeing that played out in our lives. See, you and I have an issue. We are going to die. We are, every one of us. And we don't know when. It could be soon for some of us. It could be years off for some of us. We don't know. But, it, but this is true. You will die one day. And I just want to ask you, have you thought about what's happening after you die? See, death is a consequence of sin. It says in the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin entered the world through one man. That man was Adam, his wife Eve. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people Not because they have sinned, but because we too have sinned. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God and broke that one commandment God gave them, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said to them, in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Now, they didn't fall dead when they ate that fruit. They didn't just fall on the ground that day. What they did was open the door now for death to enter in. The body began to decay. Things began to die around them. Death entered the world. The reason people die isn't simply they grow old. It's because it's, it's the effect of sin. God didn't design us to die. He designed us to live forever. But it's a consequence. And death enters into every piece of our lives. Our relationships. Our attitudes. Our thinking. You know, everything in our lives gets affected by, um, by, by sin. And death begins to run rampant in every single part of our lives. There's a principle in science called the second law of thermodynamics. It's the law of entropy. It, it says that, that something left to its own devices will, will gravitate and spiral toward decay and destruction. That the only way it can reverse that if, if some outside energy is poured into it and new life is pumped into that thing. And so a refrigerator is a good example. You plug a refrigerator in, the, the energy flows through, um, uh, the things are kept alive, you know, your, your, your meat stays frozen, whatever it is. The food is good, but as soon as you unplug that, things start to die, things start to decay. We discovered that one Christmas vacation. We came home, and it sm- smelled like someone died in our house. It was actually the refrigerator went out, and everything had spoiled over that week while we were gone. And, and that's what happens. Things start to rot. And it doesn't take a genius sometimes to, to look around ourselves and go, do you know what? My life doesn't smell really very good right now. My marriage stinks. My job just is awful. Now, these things in my life, it's, it's the effect of sin. And we need some outside energy to infuse us with life. And that energy source is Jesus See, Jesus says death is not the end. Death is a pause, not a period. Death is not termination, it's transition. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's go down to verse 23. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? When I was a child, and I apologize if some of you don't think this is appropriate in church, but the popular commercial when I was a kid was Budweiser's, you only go around once in life. Remember that? Some of you remember that? You only go around once. It's an atheistic view of life, a humanistic view of life. See, most atheists believe this. When you die, you cease to exist. Your body gets thrown into a grave. It decomposes. Your brain, your thinking, your memories, they're all gone. It's wiped out. You are done. It's over. Almost every religion speaks of an afterlife. So if you go into eastern parts of the world, like Hinduism, they teach reincarnation, which is really kind of recycling. You get to do it all over again. It's like a merry-go-round. You get off and you hop back on. You, get to, you, you live a life, and depending on how you live it, depending on karma, you get to come back again in a different form, higher or lower. And you get to try it all over again and see if you can do it better this time. Buddhism says there is an end point called nirvana. That's when you get off the merry-go-round for good. And nirvana is when you eliminate all desire. In fact, they use this picture of a drop of water hitting the ocean. It just disappears. It gets, it gets absorbed in the massiveness of the ocean. Nirvana is when your soul, your desires, when everything else gets dissolved into the mass of oneness and you cease to exist. Jesus comes along and says, I am the resurrection. Resurrection isn't reincarnation. It is, it, is, it is coming back a second time, but this time it's even better. It is a graduation to a better way of life. It is not the elimination of desire or the elimination of self. It is the full expression of self. You keep your identity, and your desires are fulfilled like they've never been fulfilled before. Heaven is the place where our desires will find its greatest fulfillment, eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. And what Jesus offers us is so incredible and amazing. There is nothing like it in the world. And sometimes in church, we get this idea that that Jesus came to make bad people good. Or Jesus came to make ignorant people wise. And I believe Jesus does both of those things, but that's not primarily why he came. Jesus came to make dead people live. And you can't have a resurrection until at first you acknowledge that I am dead in sin. And I need Jesus. But here's what he does. When you surrender yourself to Christ, you begin this process of resurrection in your life. Last night, I had the privilege of baptizing a man in our church. And uh, it was right over here in that water. And there's a great symbolic statement made in baptism. Because when someone's baptized, and we baptize by full immersion because what it represents, it represents a burial. In fact, when someone's baptized in our church, We have a saying. We say goodbye to that person because the old is being put to death and they're being raised to walk in a new way of life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that or for the purpose of just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Right now, today, we can have a second chance at life. The resurrection is not just about the future, about a body being raised from the dead. It's about the now, the soul being raised from the dead. Jesus wants to give you new life. It's called a second chance. It's called being born again, a new Start. And maybe you're in a place of life where you need a second chance. God offers that to you through Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus comes to the place where they've gathered around the tomb of Lazarus. And I'm going to jump down to verse 33. 
Mary comes out to see Jesus, and she's just bawling her eyes out. And it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. The third issue that we all deal with is this issue of desirability. Does anybody love me? See, one of the things that was very noticeable about Jesus was how he loved Lazarus and his sisters. Oh, how he loved him. Earlier in John's gospel, in the very third chapter, maybe the most famous verse in the whole Bible, it says this, For God so loved the what? The world. And you know, when he says he so loved the world, that means every single person in the world, God so loved them. Every man and woman, every adult, every child, every rich person, every poor person, every white person, every black person, every every person of, of, of every economic class, you know, everything. He loves the world. And you could put your name in there. For God so loved you. Psychologists tell us that one of the basic needs that, that we have to have for, uh, just for life is to know that someone cares about us, loves us. Someone notices us. I mean, you look at little kids, and sometimes they're just crying out to be seen, to be seen, to be noticed. Does anybody care? There's nothing worse than, than people feeling apathetic about you. I don't actually even care about you. That, that, that's, that's a deep, wounding pain. And many of us have grown up dealing with rejection. Maybe you... Maybe you lost that spouse. They dropped you. That boyfriend, girlfriend, they dumped you. The job, they let you go. The team, they cut you. And so you're dealing with rejection. And when you look in the mirror, you start to say things like, I'm not good enough. I'm not beautiful enough. There are a lot of other people better than me that are more lovable than me. But you need to know you are lovable just the way you are. God loves you. God loves you no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you've been. You can't cause God to love you any less or love you any more than he already does. See, God loves us. And I would long for every one of you to be able to look in the mirror in the morning and with this confidence say, I am loved by God. Because he desires us. He loves us. And unfortunately, some of us have grown up even in churches where all you hear is how wretched you are, how undesirable you are, how unworthy you are. And you feel beat up. In fact, sometimes you almost feel like I need to be beat up for how bad I am. I need God to kind of slap me around a little bit because I need to re- be reminded about how unlovely I am. But the truth is you need to be reminded about in spite of how bad you've been, he still loves you. And he wants better for your life. And he wants you to live this resurrected kind of life. In First John, another book written by the Apostle John Chapter 4, verse 16 says, And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us because God is love. If there's one thing you need to know about God, it's this. God is love. And he loves you and me like he loves Lazarus. So here he is. He's, he's at the tomb of Lazarus. And then we come to verse 43 in the story. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. We come to this issue of deciding. Deciding what we will do when we hear the voice of God. 
How will you respond? We know what Lazarus did. Lazarus did the very basic thing that a follower of Jesus does. We talked about this last week, and you can go online and listen to any of our other messages in this series, but last week we talked about Jesus being the good shepherd and we being the sheep, and we know who the sheep are by two things. They hear his voice and they follow him. And so here we have Lazarus. He hears the voice of Jesus, and he comes out toward Jesus. He steps out in obedience to him. That's what's required for faith. Hear the voice of God. Say yes to him. And you and I have that place of making a decision. How will we respond when we hear the voice of God? Now, Lazarus was in the tomb, wrapped up tightly, probably like a mummy. Think how mummies are wrapped. Head to toe. There's about 100 pounds of wrapping and spices, spices put on him that smell good because in those days they didn't... um, they weren't able to prepare bodies like they do today. they just start to decompose quickly. So the spices were, were placed on bodies to overcome the stench of decay. And actually, by the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, he already stinks. He is decaying. He's not playing hide-and-seek. He's actually dead. And yet, Jesus calls him out. So just picture Lazarus in the tomb like a mummy. I'm assuming he's laying down. I don't know how he gets up on his feet. But if he's wrapped from head to toe... He's not walking out. He's probably going like this. Or he's, or he's waddling. It's got to look kind of funny, right? There are people probably saying, hey, let's do the Lazarus dance. You know, you know at, at weddings and things. It was Lazarus. It was, it was hilarious watching him come out of there, but he's alive. And then Jesus says, take those, those clothes, those grave clothes off of him because he's alive again. And we don't know where the rest of the story goes. But Lazarus got a second chance at life. There's legend that he and his sisters went down to Cyprus where he became a bishop of the church and lived for about another 30 years. And there's a grave site there that they believe is where he was buried. But there's also one in France. As some believe, he went to France and avoided the persecution of Nero, who was emperor of Rome, and then was later executed by another emperor. But we don't know for sure. I just have to imagine this. Lazarus had to be pretty grateful for every moment that God gave him after that. Because when you have a brush with death, you start to look at life very differently. When you get a second chance at life, you're filled with such a gratitude. And some of you need a second chance at life. Jesus is your resurrection and life. In John chapter 5, Jesus says some pretty amazing words. He says, very truly I tell you, a time is coming And has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is not talking about future. He's talking about now. He says, I will speak and the dead will come out of their tombs. He's speaking of spiritual life. He's calling people. Even now he's speaking to you, trying to call you out of your place of death because he wants to raise you to life. I know a couple in our church. The gentleman's name is Henry. Henry was at military training school at Northern Georgia University, met a, a young five-foot red-haired gal full of spunk and energy, and, um, and he decided he wanted to ask this girl out. So he asked her out on a date, and she said no. And he continued to pursue her, and she kept saying no. You know, he wasn't a Christian at the time. and wasn't the type of guy that she wanted to marry, so she kept saying no. Well, one day she didn't show up for class. And because he, he paid a lot of attention to this girl, he decided to check on her, went to her apartment, and she didn't answer the door. 
he decided that, that there might be something wrong, so he checked inside, and what had happened was she'd become unconscious, and they had to take her to the hospital. The doctors began to run tests on her and found out that she was seriously ill. She had meningitis and encephalitis, diseases that affect the brain and the spinal cord. And as they ran tests on her, they said, this doesn't look good. Her brain is swollen. And if she comes out alive, she's probably going to be in a vegetative state or she's going to be severely handicapped. They told the parents she should bring the family in to say their goodbyes to her. But Henry, every day, would show up at the hospital and sit by her. He actually gave his own life to the Lord during that time. And he faithfully prayed over this girl. And surprised all the doctors, there was a turnaround. And she was healed. And they don't know why, and they don't know what all happened. But she began to regain all of her abilities once again. And so this man decided, I'm going to ask her out again. I mean, surely, surely after she's had this brush with death, she's going to look at things differently. He said, would you go out with me? She said, absolutely not. But a couple weeks later, as she was thinking about what she had just gone through, she said, you know what? This man was a lot like the Lord, faithfully standing by my side through my darkest hours, through my, through my tomb where I was dying. And he stayed there. I at least ought to give him a chance. And so they went out on a date. They had a great time, which led to a second date and a third date and eventually marriage. And then they moved to Colorado Springs when they transferred him to Fort Carson. And she began looking for a job to use her background and training. And she applied for a position at our church. And Laura Olaf now is our benevolence counselor at the care center. She works in our pastoral care ministry. And here's a picture of her and Henry. You probably see her up here sometimes on Sunday morning praying for people. But you know what? Her story is so powerful of how Jesus raised her from the dead, but even more beautiful is the story of a relationship that was raised from the dead. See, there is a Lord who has been patiently standing by your side, even when you've rejected him over and over and over again. You said no. When Jesus has said, I want a relationship with you, I want to know you better, you said, no, Lord. No, you're not the one. Not now. He says, I'm still going to stand by your side. And he's waiting for you because if you embrace him in your life, he will raise you to a better life, a new life, a life you've never thought possible. And some of you need a resurrection today. You're in a place in your life where you just feel that the arms of death are being wrapped around you. The grave clothes are slowly being pulled tighter. And it could be the job you have, the marriage you're in, the physical body that you're struggling with. There is death embracing you. But Jesus came to tell us, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But praise be to God. We have victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Today, if he is speaking to you, you just need to say one thing. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Don't, don't just believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's true. The Bible says that if you believe that, that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth he's Lord, you will be saved. But he wants you to say yes to his resurrection of your own life. 